Hey guys, it's Miller. So honored you're tuning in this week to the Upper Room Dallas podcast. We continue the theme around the table. Last week we looked at the bread. Uh, Peter Lewis and I have unpacked the body, the bread. And this week we're going to start to engage the blood and look at why the blood is important before God. God's perspective of the blood. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, we trace it through the patriarchs, look at the nation of Israel, and then land with Jesus himself shedding his blood. We read Hebrews 9 and 10, uh, verse by verse. It is action-packed, awesome week. Buckle up the power of the shed blood of Jesus. That's the message. Also, if you're a senior leader, senior pastor, worship leader, leading a community, I would love for you to sign up for the Turn Network. The Turn Network, the Upper Room Network, is a group of leaders that gather once a month on Zoom. You hear from Larissa and I and some of our friends. We want to equip, encourage leaders that are building communities centered on the presence of Jesus. Also, there's some uh, invite-only leadership gatherings that we're hosting this year. you got to be signed up uh, on that email list uh, to get those invites. So you can go to my IG profile. I know there's a link there for you to sign up. Also, you can sign up, I believe, on the upperroom.co website. So turn network. Come on. Let's go. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, we're going to new Sunday, same subject. We're going to talk about the table once again. And uh, Super encouraged by a lot of the testimonies that are coming forth from the teachings. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I really encourage you to go and listen to not only last week, but the week before we talked about the bread and the purpose of the bread around the table of the Lord. The Lord has prepared a table for us and it is central to our faith. There's really two ordinances that we have in the Christian faith. One is water baptized, which you do once. And then the second one is communion. And uh, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, for as often as you come to this table, which means you personally can come to this table at any time. Uh, If you're facing anything, at any time, anywhere, this table's readily available for you. And we want this to be your default, that when life throws you a curveball, that uh, you, you are so familiar with this chair at this table, that these relics feed your faith, that they strengthen your faith. Uh, We fight the good fight of faith. And uh, oftentimes, you know, I think faith has been a muscle that we flex or a prayer that we shout. But um, I think faith is found at a table and a meal that's been provided for us. The bread and the wine, they source our faith and they strengthen our faith. And it's with intent um, that, that, that he died and it's with intent that he gave us these two relics representing his finished work on the cross. And so uh, my, my prayer is that testimonies just begin to... Uh, uh, exponentially grow in our community as you personally start to feed your faith what the Lord has provided for you. Uh, We we cannot live in the days ahead uh, in secondhand relationship with Jesus. My relationship with Jesus won't sustain you. Uh, Preacher's relationship on YouTube won't sustain you. Uh, A 60-second clip that gives you kind of that revelation for a moment won't sustain you. I believe your seat at this table is what's going to sustain you in the days ahead. I truly believe that. And so we talked about the bread the last two weeks, and uh, this week we're gonna talk about the blood. And forgive me, I I'm I'm, I'm, uh, woke up not feeling really well this morning, so uh, I went to bed feeling great, woke up not feeling good, and so I'm believing that the Lord in his grace is gonna be strong in my weakness, and that uh, the blood, we're, we're, we're talking about the blood. That This is, I think, the most important subject uh, when we talk about the realm of faith, the blood of Jesus in the eyes of the Father, what the Father sees when we put our faith in the blood, uh, I think it has the power to to transform everything. And so would you put your hand on your heart? And uh, I just wanna ask, Lord, that you would, uh, in my weakness, be strong, and that you would pour forth your spirit, that your word would be living and active. Uh, God, that your word would pierce our hearts, that it would divide soul and spirit, bone and marrow, Lord, that you would set our minds on things above, that we could see what you see when you look at your son's blood. Lord, that blood is still warm before you, Lord, that sacrifice, it it, it was made before anything existed, Lord. In your heart, you had already given your son for us, and uh, Lord, it was the plan of redemption 
then and it's the plan of redemption now. And so renew our minds around what you know, what you see, and give us your faith, Father, in the power of your son's blood to defeat the devil, to defeat demons, to defeat assaults, to defeat diseases, to break curses, God, that household salvations would happen because of this sermon, Lord, that lives would be transformed, touched, and changed, Father, that accusation would bow, that condemnation would break, that shame would leave, that guilt would go, that consciences would be clean because of your precious blood, Lord Jesus. There's power in your blood, Lord. It's more than a song. It is a revelation that will change everything. And so give us insight, give us understanding, give us the knowledge of the blood of Jesus, Father, what has been supplied for us in heaven, in the holy sanctuary, God. It's why we can boldly come before you, Lord. And so would you renew our hearts? Would you strengthen our resolve in your son's blood? In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. Um, so I wanted to start with a video. Uh, I want you to remember this sermon. Uh, this was a video I saw probably five years ago, and uh, it sums up our subject. So that's this morning's subject, blood. We're going to talk about the blood of Jesus. Um, the angels give us commentary on the power of his blood, speaking of the last days, speaking of the last generation that will walk the earth, and I believe that generation is alive today. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, this is the angels testifying to what they saw with this generation. Look at Revelation 12, 11. It says, and they, meaning those people on the earth, in the end times, overcame the devil. They overcame God's adversary, our adversary, two ways. Because of the blood of the lamb, which is the blood of Jesus. Jesus was described by John the Baptist as the lamb of God. So they overcame the enemy by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. They were committed because I believe they had revelation of the blood and what Jesus had provided. Uh, Derek Prince has some phenomenal teachings on the blood of Jesus. There's not a lot of teachings on the blood. Uh, I, I don't know if it's just because culturally we don't like to talk about blood, uh, but the blood of Jesus is something we need to talk about, understand, teach on regularly. Derek Prince has some phenomenal teachings, and he says this. He says, we testify personally to what the word of God says about what the blood of Jesus does. Our testimony is found in the blood. Let me say that again. Your testimony about what the Lord has done in you and will do through you is found in the blood of Jesus. So the word of our testimony is found in the blood of the lamb. So those two are intricately connected. And in the hour ahead, when the war uh, rages, um, we need to understand the power of uh, Jesus's blood. Uh, Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 18 through 20. He would say, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. You were not redeemed with perishable things. You were not redeemed with uh, things found on the earth like gold or silver from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. But this is what you were redeemed with, verse 19. You were redeemed with the precious blood. 
You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You were redeemed because of his blood. You were redeemed because of his offering. You were redeemed because of the blood of Jesus. And it says this in in verse 20. This is a real insightful uh, revelation about the blood is that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So this was God's plan eternally. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse eight, says the lamb who was slain before what? The foundation of the world. So what does that mean? It means it was in the Father's heart, it was in the Father's heart to willingly give the Son on our behalf. The plan of redemption was established before God said, let there be light. He had a plan, amen? So there was a holy huddle, I talk about it a lot. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit were unified in a plan to redeem mankind from sin. And that plan of redemption before the foundation of the world is that the Son would, 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 would tabernacle among us. There was a body that the Father had prepared for the Son, and the Son would do what you could not, do what I could not. He would live blamelessly. That's why that scripture in verse 19, put up 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that's why it says that he is unblemished and spotless. It was the life that he lived. The life that he lived before the Father was, was, was a valid sacrifice to redeem you and I. He would become the second Adam. And so uh, this morning, I wanna give kind of a broad uh, overview of the blood. And, and we get foreshadows, we get uh, uh, types and shadows in the Old Testament of this sacrifice that Jesus would make. And, uh, and anytime the Lord, anytime God saw blood, he thought of this agreement that he had already made within the Godhead. And so I wanna take you through a journey and then we're gonna read probably more scripture than we've ever read in one time, Hebrews 9 and 10, uh, to end the sermon. And so follow me on, on this journey starting in Genesis and we're gonna look at uh, the patriarchs and, and how they understood uh, how the blood moved the Lord. We're gonna look at the nation of Israel, then we're gonna look at the cross and read about the purpose of his blood in the heavenly sanctuary and how that impacts us today. Everyone say amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter three is where we'll begin. In Genesis chapter three, this is after the fall. Uh, The consequences of the fall, uh, they were lied to by the serpent. And immediately after they took the fruit and ate it, both Adam and Eve, uh, their eyes were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So they were covered, but their covering had been removed. And so the response to sin, the effects of sin, is that they knew they needed covering. And so they sewed fig leaves together. They found fig leaves, sewed them together, and they made for themselves clothing. They made for themselves covering for their nakedness because they were covered in shame. And God shows up, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and they hid from the presence of the Lord because there was now separation between God and man. And God asked the question, where are you? They're hiding. And God then uh, curses. He curses the woman, curses man, and curses uh, the serpent. And, and as, as, they're being, uh, as they're being escorted out of the garden, uh, we see the first mention of blood in the Bible. It, it's, it's in uh, their transition from the garden, uh, being, being led out of the garden, and it's in verse 21. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. He clothed them. What did he clothe them with? He clothed them with garments of skin, but the garments of skin were the skin of an animal. This was kind of the first leather jacket, if you will. It was to cover Adam and Eve. Now, um, many theologians believe that the animal that was killed was a lamb. We don't know that, but let's just assume it was, that it was a lamb that was killed. And I believe that the Lord 
actually gave revelation to Adam about the power of blood in this moment. I believe when the skin was placed on Adam and Eve who wanted covering, Genesis chapter three, verse seven, they were trying to cover themselves. The Lord knew that they needed covering and he redemptively, prophetically covers them with a sacrifice. And I believe when he put that sacrifice on them, I'm reading into this, but I don't believe that the sacrifice was days old. I believe it was fresh. And I believe the coat of skin that they put upon themselves still had the moisture of blood on it. And this is a prophetic picture of this plan of redemption that would be activated from this point moving forward. And you have to see the significance of blood here and now and moving ahead. Because it's pointing to the offering that would be sufficient to fully redeem you and me. Not based on our works, not based on our blood, not based on our behavior, not based on our obedience, but based on a second Adam. You realize Adam didn't have a father. God was his father. Genesis chapter three, didn't plan on sharing this, but I feel like I'm supposed to. Genesis chapter three, or two, verse seven. Two, verse seven. It says, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. So God made a body for Adam in Genesis three, seven. The dust from the ground, he forms a body for him. You're made of dust. Did you know that? You're made of dirt. I heard a joke Bill Johnson said he doesn't dust his home because he's afraid he might be uh, dusting someone that he knows. <laughs> Something like that. I think I butchered it. But the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. So he took clay and he formed a body for man. But man is more than a body. And then he took a deep breath and he breathed the ruha, the life of God into Adam's bloodstream. Leviticus 17.3 says the life of a being is found in the what? Blood. So as he breathes into Adam, the life of God is flowing in Adam's body. So this is Adam as a spirit. And then we see the breath of life is there. There's a body. And then man became a living being. I think that's his soul. So you see the three components of man, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Now, when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. He said, if you eat the apple, you'll die. Satan's like, no, you surely won't die. Well, he ate the apple. Did he physically die? No, he would, but he spiritually died in that moment. And his blood became tainted. His blood became polluted. That's why there would need to be a second Adam who wasn't born of an earthly dad. This is why the immaculate virgin conception is so important because he found a body and then the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and whoo, the Ruah of life was once again in a man. Who was that man? The second Adam, Jesus. Why was his blood perfect, unblemished? Why was it uh, acceptable? Because it came straight from the Father himself. Are you following me? Yes. This is the power of the second Adam. But it, you've got to see, you've got to see the, the, the bloodline here. The bloodline. Because it's what we get grafted into when we're born again. So uh, the plan of redemption sets forth from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. God covers them literally in the skin of an animal, most likely the skin of a lamb. And, uh, and then we have that family uh, multiplying, growing. So the bloodline of Adam uh, is, is in Cain and Abel. Um, Genesis chapter 4.1, now the man had relations with his wife and she conceived, I was reading it this week, this is just my commentary and thought on it, but she conceived once, but she gave birth twice. I don't know if Adam uh, and Eve gave, if she gave birth to twins, Cain and Abel, but we know that she conceived, she gave birth to Cain, and then she gave birth to Abel. So two sons came forth from Adam and Eve, and, uh, and the details of this narrative, again, once, around, once again, focus on blood. Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So this represents the work of his hands. He brought the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, though, brought of the firstlings of his flock. So I think there's first fruits here. This is, this is an important theme, first fruits but it's the first fruits of his flock and of their fat portions. 
So he brought, he brought a lamb before the Lord. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cable's offering. Why? For, for Cain's offering, not Cable, Cain. <laughs> Why? Because Abel, Abel's was a, a, a blood offering. Abel's was a blood offering. God re, had regard for the blood. It was, it was an acceptable offering behalf of the father. And, uh, and we know what happens. Cain, Cain gets mad and he actually kills his brother and uh, the brother's blood cries out uh, for vengeance, for, um, for justice. So let's fast forward. The next blood offering is in Genesis chapter eight. Uh, this is Noah. Uh, Noah went into the ark Interesting detail along the lines of blood sacrifice. Um, I was reading this week to my boys uh, the story of Noah, and it said they entered the ark and the animals came in twosie twosies. Am I right? But do you know that not all the animals came in twosie twosies? It was the unclean animals that came in twosie twosies, but the clean animals came in sevens. That's verse two, chapter seven. Clean animals by seven, a male and female, and of the animals that were not clean, two. Why? I believe Noah had prepared to sacrifice animals once the flood would subside. We don't know how many animals he offered. I think it was five. It's the number for grace. We know he at least kept two so that they can multiply. But in chapter eight, verse 18, Noah went out he and his sons and wife, sons and wives with him. So Noah and his entire family comes out of the ark. God had commissioned him to be fruitful, multiply. And look at this. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. When? When he came out of the ark. The first thing he did was shed blood on an altar. I believe he was offering the clean animals, the excess animals that he had out of Genesis chapter seven, verse two. But look at the Lord's response to Noah offering blood on an altar. It's powerful. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, but I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they shall not cease. Why? Because blood was offered. Noah's offering still stands today. Blood in that moment broke the curse that God will never flood or destroy the earth again. And then he puts the seasons in place, which tells me that God is the God of climate change. <laughs> this is when he instituted the seasons. It says, cold, hot, summer, winter, day, night, they shall not cease. Why? Because blood was offered before the Lord and the Lord responded. So this gives us insight. This is a foreshadow of blood. What does it mean? Curses can be broken when blood is shed. It's pointing to Christ. It's pointing to the power of Christ's blood. We see it in, uh, in, in Genesis 3, the covering of the blood. We see it in Genesis 4, the acceptable offering of the blood. We see it in Genesis chapter 8. It's the power to break a curse, the offering of blood. This is all pointing to the ultimate perfect sacrifice that would be made for you and me, Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Uh, we can look at Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Abraham says... He receives a promise from the Lord. Um, you know, you're gonna leave your country and you're gonna go into a land. That land is a promised land. Uh, I will make you a nation. I will bless you. Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Uh, I will make your name great. And so Abraham went. Once he got the word in verse four, he goes in search for this promise. And then in verse six, Abraham passes through the land. He comes to the promised land in Canaanite. And then look at verse seven. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land that you're walking in. So what does Abram do? 
Abram responds by building an altar to the Lord. He sheds blood based on the covenant and based on the promise that was received. Immediately he sheds blood. I believe the testimony of the blood was being passed down. They knew what was acceptable before the eyes of God. You could fast forward to Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac, same thing. I think it's uh, chapter 26. Yeah, 26. He comes into the same land. And he's digging wells. And in 26, 23, yep. He went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and he makes the same covenant that he made with his father Abraham. I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bless you, multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. This is amazing to me that God makes the same covenant with Isaac that he makes with Abraham. You know what this tells me is that there are no grandchildren in the kingdom. What, what do I mean by that? Is that Isaac, he did inherit a promise from Abraham but the Lord renews that covenant with Isaac directly. You can't live on your father's faith. So Isaac wasn't doing that. He's walking out, the promises given to his father, but he's the God of Abraham and Isaac. And here, you see the promises activated. Same one for the sake of the servant Abraham. And so what does he do in verse 25? He builds an altar there and calls upon the name of the Lord. Again, blood is shed. So you have Abraham, you have Isaac. Who's the next brother? Jacob, Jacob, chapter 33. And just for time's sake, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cruise through this one, but 33, 18, uh, he comes to a promised land, he pitches a tent, and outside of the tent, he builds an altar and he sheds blood. That's Genesis 33, uh, eight, 18 through 20. So we have, these are the patriarchs uh, of old, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob would have 12 sons, which we would get the tribes of, of Israel. So there'd be 12 tribes. Uh, Joseph was uh, one of the sons. He would uh, be sold into Egyptian slavery in which ultimately the uh, Israelites would, um, through this lineage, uh, come to Egypt and they would be enslaved to the Egyptians. And so guess what? What these patriarchs learned about God on, a, on an individual level about the power of his blood, the nation is gonna learn about in Exodus chapter 12. So if your Bible's go to Exodus chapter 12, say, Miller, this is good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Exodus 12, this is the institution of the Passover meal. Now again, these are all prototypes and shadows of what is to come. First Corinthians chapter five tells us that Christ Jesus is our Passover lamb. Christ Jesus is our Passover lamb. This is when the Passover is instituted. So I want you to see the, the power of uh, blood here in Exodus chapter 12, and we'll start in verse 21. <clears throat> then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and take for yourselves lambs. Say lambs. lambs. So go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families. So this is not just instruction to elders, this is an instruction to fathers. <coughs> Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. Slay the Passover lamb. Again, prophetic of what Christ would become for us. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin. So after you, after you slay the lamb, you're gonna drain the blood of the lamb into a basin, and then you're gonna take hyssop. Hyssop's a cleansing agent. I think hyssop actually represents faith here. So by faith, you're gonna apply that blood, hyssop. We'll see hyssop used in the next story as well. Um, you're gonna apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel of the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of the house until morning. So you're gonna apply it to the lintel of your doorpost and uh, you can actually see the cross in the way that they would uh, put the, the blood on the doorpost. But it was each father was to put blood on each home. I said this last night, just had this thought this week that really glad that there were no delinquent fathers uh, in the nation of Israel. No, no uh, 
apathetic fathers. This is, this is fathers or dads taking spiritual leadership of their homes. <clears throat> fathers were responsible for their families and they applied blood over the home of their families. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when the Lord, when God, when the father sees the blood on the lentil, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Everyone, it's so important that you, you understand this. When the Lord sees the blood, it did not matter what the Israelites thought of the blood. It did not matter what the Egyptians thought of the blood. It did not matter what the destroyer thought of the blood. What mattered is what God saw when he saw the blood. God was appraising the blood when he looked at it. God had a value for the blood when he looked at it. And, and what he was thinking about was this eternal plan that he had in his heart, not yet executed in history, but in the realm of eternity, the son had already been given. And so when the Lord sees the blood of a lamb on a doorpost and he's passing over, he sees what is to come, and that is Christ Jesus being our Passover lamb. This is so important, though, that you identify the power of blood. And it's from this moment that deliverance happens. So we see that the blood covers, we see that the blood breaks curses, we see that the blood uh, inherits, uh, inherits promises, activates covenant, but here the blood, the blood, the blood delivers. There's a uber prophetic picture of you in bondage to sin and what the blood of Jesus sets you free from. Fast forward, where do they go from uh, Egyptian captivity, they go out to the wilderness and they were to go to a mountain. Why were they to go to a mountain? Because the Lord wanted them to what on that mountain? He wanted to worship. It, it, was, it was to come out and to worship the Lord. And so fast forward to Exodus chapter 24. Say, Miller, this is good. <laughs> Exodus 24, or yeah, Exodus 24, not Genesis 24. Exodus 24, this is Moses. Uh, the Lord is gonna come to him. You're gonna see the power of blood once again. Uh, he says, come up, come up. Everyone say, come up. So Moses is invited to come up the mountain where the Lord was. So he takes Aaron, Aaron's son, and 70 of the elders, and they are to worship at a distance. Really important. They were to worship at a distance, so they could not draw near, but they could worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near the Lord, and they shall not come near, nor the people shall come up near him. So only Moses was allowed to come near. Moses is a prototype, again, of a deliverer, prototype of the Lord. Moses alone could come near to the Lord, but the people cannot, the elders cannot, only Moses. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and the ordinances, and the people answered, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar, at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars, 12 tribes of Israel. So at the bottom of the mountain, he sets up an altar. He sent a young man to the sons of Israel, and they brought burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So look what Moses does with the blood. Moses takes the blood, and he put it in basins. Again, basins. He's applying blood. What does he apply the blood to? The first thing he applies the blood is to the altar. So he consecrates the altar where the offering would go. But then, this is so interesting in verse seven, he took the uh, book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant. So covenant was made through the shedding of blood, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is the old covenant being instituted on a mountain In verse eight, so Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. Isn't that amazing? So he made covenant with him, sprinkled blood on the altar, and then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Verse eight, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So he institutes the old covenant based on the blood. This was like three million people that he covered in blood. Think about that. That's a lot of blood. 
that's a lot of blood. But he makes covenant through the blood, sprinkles it on the people, sprinkles it on the altar. And then I love the next chapter. The next chapter, he's going to institute, there's some more instructions from the Lord in the moment. But then in in chapter 25, after the blood has been shed, look at verse 8. 24, the chapter 24, verse 1 started with Moses and the elders coming up. But after the blood had been shed, chapter 25, verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So now the Lord is going to dwell among the people once the blood has been shed. Do you see that? So God comes down the mountain. Chapter 24, Moses has to go up. Chapter 25, God comes down. And the uh, sacrificial system is intact. And you have the tabernacle of God dwelling with the Israelites, his chosen people. And, uh, and from there, you have the sacrificial system uh, there's a number of things that we could point to in the sacrificial system. Uh, one of them that I want to point to is in uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6. This is uh, instructions about the law. We'll look at another one in the coming weeks uh, about instructions for the leper. But this is, again, a prophetic picture of the Lord. Uh, Leviticus is after Numbers. Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers. Where's Leviticus? It's before Numbers. Uh, Leviticus 4. <clears throat> Look at verse 15. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of a bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting. Verse 17. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. So before they could go into the holiest of holies, they had to sprinkle the blood seven times. Um, Seven times. Everyone say seven. It's the number of redemption, completion. Uh, Now, this all points to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on our behalf. Uh, Do you know how many times Jesus would bleed out of his uh, body? He would bleed seven times. Seven times. It was, uh, the first was in uh, Gethsemane, where drops of sweat would come forth. Do you have this, this slide? Jazzy, it says uh, Gethsemane. Everyone, if you're writing this down, put number one, Gethsemane. <clears throat> we'll talk about the, the, the seven sprinklings of blood and, and the redemptive purposes for them, but I just want you to see how in the earthly sanctuary and the earthly worship center that God had established, uh, it mimics the sacrifice that Jesus would make. And this seven sprinklings of blood um, points to the seven times that Jesus would shed blood. One was in Gethsemane when uh, drops of sweat would have blood in them. Uh, the Lord was redeeming our will. From Gethsemane, he would be taken to the high priest's home, Caiaphas, and in the courtyard of Caiaphas, he would have been beaten and his beard would be pulled. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 56. They plucked literally the beard from his face. From Caiaphas' home, the next day, they would take him to the Praetorium. The Praetorium, he would go to the whipping post. We spoke uh, at length about the whipping post last week, and by his stripes we are what? Healed. And so the, the, the stripes, the ribbons of flesh, were for the healing of our bodies. And then leaving the praetorium, the Roman soldiers would put a, a crown of thorns upon his head. I remember being in uh, Gethsemane and uh, seeing uh, the thorns that were in the olive grove that we were near, and the, th- the thorns were th- so thick and so sharp and so long. And so when they put this uh, crown of thorns upon his head, uh, he would have bled from them placing that crown upon his head. And from the praetorium, wearing the crown, he would go to the cross. And three different times would he shed blood on the cross, his hands, his feet. And then once he was dead, they would pierce his side. Uh, all, f- all seven of those have redemptive purposes, but I wanted you to see the sprinkling of the blood seven times outside of the veil is prophetic of Jesus shedding his blood seven times. <clears throat> so l- l- let, me, let me now read to you uh, Hebrews and Hebrews commentary on what took place in the heavenly sanctuary. I've been talking about the blood on earth but it points to a greater reality because the Lamb of God who would be slain would offer his blood in the eternal sanctuary. This is Hebrews 9 and 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna read a lot from Hebrews 9 and 10. 
So buckle up just for a second. I'm gonna be reading out of the Passion Translation. <clears throat> this is a poetic translation. It's, it's not a literal translation, but it's a good depiction of what happened. <clears throat> this is Hebrews 9.1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So we just read about this, the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped, the outer sanctuary, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil was a tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna, Aaron's staff, which budded, I'm not reading from, no. no. Oh, wait, snap, I'm not on the internet. I'll just read it from here. I'm sorry. But that translation's pretty good too, huh? <laughs> go, go back to one real quick. I'm sorry, let me start here. Now in the first covenant, there were specific rules for worship, including a sanctuary on earth to worship in. This is what we just speak about. When you entered the tabernacle, you would first come into the holy chamber uh, where you would find the lampstand and the bread of his presence on the fellowship table. Then as you pass through the next curtain, you would enter into the innermost chamber called the holiest sanctuary of all. So this is the holiest of holies. It contained the golden altar of incense and the ark of covenant, the ark of covenant of mercy, which is the wooden box covered entirely with gold. And placed inside the ark of covenant of mercy was the golden jar with the mystery man inside, Aaron's resurrection rod, which had sprouted, and the stone tablet engraved with that old covenant. Verse five. On the top of the lid of the ark were the two cherubims, angels of splendor with outstretched wings overshadowing the throne of mercy. So this is the mercy seat. But now is not the time to discuss further the significant details of these things. <laughs> he didn't want to go on a rabbit trail there. So with this prescribed pattern of worship, the priest would re re routinely go in to the outer, inner, holiest of holies out of the first chamber to perform their religious duties. And the high priest was permitted to enter into the holiest sanctuary of all only once a year. And he could never enter without first offering sacrificial blood. Everyone see that? Sacrificial blood for both his own sins and for the sins of the people. Now the Holy Spirit uses the symbols of this pattern of worship to reveal that the perfect way of holiness had not yet been unveiled. For as long as the tabernacle stood, it was an illustration that pointed to our present time of fulfillment, demonstrating that the offerings and animal sacrifices had failed to perfectly cleanse the consciousness of the worshiper. So they're pointing to a greater reality, but this was not working. It was a tutor pointing us to something else. For this old pattern of worship was a matter of external rules and rituals concerning food and drink and ceremonial watchings, which was imposed upon us until the appointed time of heart restoration had arrived. But now, the anointed one, this is Jesus, has become the king priest of every wonderful thing that has come, for he serves in a greater, more perfect, heavenly sanctuary, not made by man. And he has entered once and forever. Everyone say once and forever. He has entered once and forever into the holiest sanctuary of all, not with the blood of animal sacrifices, but with the sacred blood of his own sacrifice. He was the lamb. He drained his own blood for you and for me in the holiest of holies. And he alone has now made our salvation secure forever. Under the old covenant, get this, under the old covenant, the blood of bulls, goats, and the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled on those who were defiled and effectively cleansed them outwardly from their ceremonial impurities Yet how much more will the sacred blood of the Messiah, Jesus, thoroughly cleanse our consciences? For by the power of the eternal spirit, so for by the power of the eternal spirit, he has offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifices that now frees us from our dead works to worship and serve the living God. Go back there just a second. 
For by the power of the eternal spirit, he's offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice. Not one drop of his blood was wasted. I believe the Holy Spirit was actively moving as Jesus offered himself to God as the perfect sacrifice, which means every ounce of blood shed that evening, I believe, made it to heaven by the power of the Spirit. The blood shed in Gethsemane, the blood shed at Caiaphas' home, the blood shed at the Praetorium, the blood shed from the Praetorium to the cross, the blood shed on the wooden tree, and then the spear that went in his side, I believe all of that went into the eternal tabernacle to cleanse it so that, keep reading, verse 15. So Jesus is the one who enacted a new covenant with a new relationship with God so that those who accept the invitation will receive the eternal inheritance he has promised to his heirs. For he died to release us from the guilt of the violation committed under the first covenant. Now a person's last will and testament can only take effect after one has been proven to have died. Otherwise, uh, the will cannot be enforced while the person who made it is still alive. Keep going. So this is why even the first covenant was inaugurated without the blood of animals. Blood being shed in Acts covenant. For Moses ratified the covenant. After he gave the people all the commandments of the law, he took the blood of calves, goats, water, scarlet wool, and hyssop branch and sprinkled both the people and the book of the covenant. This is what we talked about in Exodus 25. This saying, uh, this is the blood of the covenant that God commands you to keep. Verse 21. And later Moses also sprinkled the tabernacle with the blood and every utensil and item used in their service of worship. Actually, nearly everything under the law was purified with blood since forgiveness only comes through an outpouring of blood. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And so it was necessary for all the earthly symbols of the heavenly realities to be purified with these animal sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves require a superior sacrifice than these. For the Messiah did not enter into an earthly tabernacle made by men, which was but an echo of the true sanctuary, but he entered into heaven itself to appear before the face of God in our place. Under the old system, year after year, the priest entered the most holy sanctuary with blood that was not his own, but the Messiah did not need to repeatedly offer himself year after year, for that would mean he must suffer repeatedly ever since the fall of the world. But now he has appeared at the fulfillment of the ages to abolish sin once and for all by the sacrifice of himself. Come on, every human being is appointed to die once and then to face God's judgment. But when we die, We'll be face to face with Christ, the one who experienced death for all to bear the sins of many. And now to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to bring us into the fullness of salvation. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Chapter 10. I want to make to verse 21. Verse 21, your, your mind's going to emoji head blown here in a second. So the old system. Can I keep reading scriptures? All right? All right. So the old system, that old law, living under the law presented us only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices after year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. The law could never make one perfect. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate sin, they would have ceased to be offered and the worshipers would have a clean conscience. Instead, once was not enough. So by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sin and their hearts were still impure, meaning the old system was ineffective. It could not cleanse the worshiper's conscience. For what power does the blood, everyone, there's the blood, the blood, the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? It doesn't. So when Jesus the Messiah came into the world, he said this, since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, you have clothed me with a body that I may offer myself instead. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice. So I said to you, God, this is the covenant of redemption. I will be the one to go and do your will. 
to fulfill the, all that is written of me in your word. First, he said, multiple offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them to be offered. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, so by being the sacrifice that removes sin, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces the entire system with the new covenant. By God's will, we have been purified, made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah. Yet everyday priests still stir ritually, offering the same sacrifices again and again, sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. But when this priest had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin, all time he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his enemies. And by this one perfect sacrifice, he made us holy and complete for all time. That's good news. Keep going. Afterwards, uh, the Holy Spirit confirms this when he says, uh, the Lord says, afterwards, I will give this covenant. I will embed my laws into their hearts, fasten my word to their thoughts. Uh, and he says, I will again remember their sin and lawless deeds no more. So if sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? The blood is sufficient. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us into, he welcomes us to come into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly and without hesitation. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn into, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house, last verse, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from an accusing conscience. Now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. That's the Bible. That's a lot of Bible. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. The blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word over your life. The blood of Jesus. We're gonna talk about the benefits of the blood in the coming weeks. I just wanted to give you an overarching view of why the blood is important. It's the most powerful substance that's ever touched the face of the earth. There's nothing else that can set you free. There's nothing else that can make you right with God the blood of Jesus. That's what we put our faith in. We put our faith in what he has provided for us. So when we come to the table, we're putting our faith that this liquid is the blood that was shed for us. In it, Jesus said, I came so that you may have life and life abundantly. It's not just a theological like, yay, life and life abundantly. It's found in his blood. The life of Jesus is found in the blood of Jesus.